So speaking about the human sufferings, then uh, an update about our phone system. After five hours of work with an expert, one phone is working, halfway working again. And that's the phone if you walk into the monk's office on the right. So uh, you can actually call out from that phone and people who call the monastery will get that phone and, uh, it, and can leave messages. There's instructions on how to leave messages. Um, or sorry, how to check messages on that phone. It's different. You actually press the message button and it'll just, there's no mailboxes. It's just ba very basic. Back to the basics. And uh, the when people call the monastery now, they will hear, you've reached a Bayagiri Buddhist monastery. Please leave a message. That's it. So um, anyway, all messages will go to that one phone currently. So uh, I've instructed Jack in this. He'll check messages on that phone. <laughs> and uh, then tomorrow our uh, expert is coming back and we'll try to more or less rebuild our system to be to resemble what it was before. So that's the uh, IT suffering. High tech, high tuk, as they say in Thailand. Uh, tuk is the word for dukkha in Thai. So uh, as requested, we'll go into more suffering today, suffering of the animal realm. I uh, am Pabanka Rinpoche talking about suffering of the animal realm and also the suffering of, we'll finish up on the human suffering and go into the suffering of the devas. Let's see where that takes us. Thinking about the sufferings of the animals. This has two sections, thinking about their general sufferings and thinking about the sufferings of particular types of animals. Thinking about their general sufferings. Animals experience five kinds of suffering, eating one another, being stupid and benighted, experiencing heat and cold, experiencing hunger and thirst, and being exploited or made to work. The sufferings of animals are the least of the three lower realms, yet in such rebirths they eat one another and suffer. Animals with huge bodies, sea monsters and the like, have bodies many yojanas long. Some sea monsters are types of fish, Others are whales that are capable of swallowing them, and there are even whales that can swallow other whales. Many smaller animals infest the bodies of the monsters and eat them. There comes a point when the monsters can no longer bear this, and they rub their bodies on underwater rocky mountains. This kills the parasites living on their bodies, and the oceans are made red for many yojanas. The larger creatures devour the smaller ones, while many smaller ones feed on the larger ones. Though they cannot bear to remain there, they cannot even wiggle free of the spot they live on. The animals of the great oceans are heaped on top of each other and must live with one eating the other from behind. Creatures reborn in the dark depths of the oceans between the continents do not recognize each other. Mothers do not recognize their offspring just after giving birth and vice versa. They eat whatever falls into their mouths and so must live by feeding on each other. Interestingly, the uh, California newts, um, if you learn about them here in the, in the monastery, they actually, uh, when they're hungry, they just open their mouth and just keep walking and whatever falls into it, they just, they just eat, including other newts. So it's true. Even the animals in the human realms eat each other. 
Hawks eat little birds. Birds eat worms. Beasts of prey and deer kill each other. Hunting dogs stalk deer and kill them, and so on. You should not look on all this suffering as if it were some spectacle happening over there. You must meditate on it in order to gain insight into what happens when you are reborn as one of these sentient beings. Animals are stupid and benighted. They do not even know whether they are being led to a place to be slaughtered or to be fed, much less know anything else. They suffer from heat and cold. They are scorched to death in summer, frozen to death in winter, and so on. Once a lama picked up a long red worm in his hand and asked it, Aren't you a Kampa monk? I am, it said in human speech. We cannot be certain we won't be born as such worms. One can cite this story. The father of a Bonpo villager died, and Milarepa predicted that the father would be reborn under a piece of dung in the valley's heights. We might wonder, how could we ever get such a rebirth? But this might in fact be only an hour away. When we are reborn as worms, we have to live wriggling under the ground just to keep breathing. Or we might get eaten by birds. But even if they ate our upper half, still we would not die. Our lower half would continue to wriggle. How can we be certain that we will live like this or not? Even if we do nothing else, we must work hard at preventing our rebirth in such a base state. Most animals, moreover, are ugly in shape and coloring. They also get hungry and thirsty and spend the whole day on the ground in search of food, suffering because they do not find any. We cannot stand it now when somebody calls us a mangy old dog. What would we do if we were actually reborn as one? Look at the food, drink, sleeping places, and so forth that dogs have. The only places they can find food are inside human dwelling places. Yet when they go inside, everyone says, A dog's come in, and for no reason they act like a demon has come inside. What else could this be but the result of the dog's evil coma? In some monasteries, dogs howl when the horns are sounded for monks to assemble. This is a sign that some monks have been reborn as dogs. Actually, that's a widespread belief in Thailand as well, that dogs that howl when the bells are rung were previously monks. Some animals are coin-like in shape, with no arms or legs at all. Once a lama in Dakpo regularly received butter from one family that sponsored him and meat from another, but the lama had not consecrated them. He died and was reborn as a she-yak that used to give a lot of milk in the household of the family that offered the butter. Later the yak fell down a ravine and the river carried it off. The layman who had given the meat found the yak. When he had eaten its meat, he discovered writing engraved on one of its ribs. I have repaid my debt of meat to the so-and-so family and my debt of butter to family such-and-such. Such. Lamas, monastic officials, Geshe scholars, and the like may get exemptions in monasteries, but the law of cause and effect uh, makes absolutely no exemptions. If we are not careful now, it wouldn't be difficult for the head of a family to change places with his donkey or his guard dog. There is a story of a family that used to sacrifice animals to the Turtika idol, I believe that's uh, like the Hindu idols, behind their house whenever their luck was bad. Things would then make, go very well. The father of the family's dying words were, make more animal sacrifices. The father was later reborn as a bull, and his own son performed a six-fold six sacrifice on it. There is also the story of how the head of a family was reborn as a fish in the lake behind his house. 
We cannot be certain these things will not also happen to us. The suffering of being exploited is as follows. Take the case of a donkey. He is made to carry loads, even though his back may be covered with sores. When he is close to death, he is abandoned where he drops, and he dies while the crows pluck out his eyes even before he has stopped breathing. We must think about these things in order to develop insight into how impossible it is to bear these sufferings in such a rebirth. Most of these animals live in the depths of the great oceans, the dark depths between continents. Some of them live in the lower reaches and other in the higher, like piles of discarded dregs from beer making. The higher animals press down on the lower ones who have difficulty even breathing. Thinking about the suffering of more dispersed animals. These are the animals in the human realms, and they have limitless ways of experiencing suffering. We have all possible causes for taking these rebirths. They are still powerful and many in number. The most powerful of them are, for example, being disrespectful to the Dhamma and his exponents, and celibates calling each other animals. These are illustrated in one story. Once in India, someone acted as a benefactor for those members of the Sangha observing the rains retreat, but the benefactor gave shoddy goods. He was reborn in foul-smelling mud as a worm with a monk's head, and so endured suffering. Once someone said a certain monk looked like a monkey. For saying that, he took 500 monkey rebirths. These stories come from the suttas. I think this is more Jataka tales. Great sins take us to hell rebirths. Medium unwholesome actions take to, uh, to hungry ghost rebirths. Uh, small unwholesome actions to animal rebirths. The way a, a bad action becomes great depends on the intention the merit field, or the material object involved, and so on. By great unwholesome actions, we do not mean obvious things like killing a human being. We will in future lives disappear into the lower realms because of the comma of inadvertently joking about karmically potent beings, such as our parents, or insulting them under our breath. The assurance of not being reborn in the lower realms will only come when we have achieved the patient stage of the path of preparation. Those who have gained the patient stage will not fall into the lower realms. This does not apply to us. We know our present capabilities. Before we die, we cannot expiate the causes we have already accumulated that lead to the lower realms. Once we are reborn in the lower realms, we will not gain any means or a refuge to free us from those realms. Observe and you will know that the animal realm is the best of the three lower realms, but it is still impossible for animals to recite even one Om Mani Padme Hung, it is second nature for them to have powerful delusions or the three poisons. They, for, they therefore accumulate fresh evil kama and migrate from lower realm to lower realm. The only thing lying between us and the infamous three lower realms is the mere fact that we haven't stopped breathing. In a short while, later this year or next, or at most in a few years' time, some of us could be reborn in hell and live with our bodies indistinguishable from fire. Others could be reborn as hungry ghosts and live while not finding even a drop of water or a speck of food. Others will be reborn as animals with sharp horns on their heads and shaggy fur on their bodies. We can't be sure we won't get such rebirths, like waking up from a dream. When we recall these things, we should not think of them as stories happening far away or as mere objects of curiosity. The point is to have insight into what it would be like to be reborn in these realms and... Afterward, the certainty that we will be reborn in these realms after this life. Suppose we were spectators when many criminals were being punished by a king's edict. 
then suddenly we ourselves were seized, led from the mob, and received punishment like the criminals before us. Similarly now, we just feel the many, many sentient beings undergo such suffering in some place called the lower realms, and we look on with curiosity, like watching a butcher at a sheep slaughtering yard, would imagine in suffering and fear we would experience if we suddenly arrived in the lower realms, or turned into a sheep and were held down by that same butcher and actually felt his blade going between our ribs. We should have this sort of insight. The Buddha, the Bhagavan, gave us this prediction. My savakas, in the future, beings will go to the lower realms like sand running out of an overturned sandbag. We are like the criminal sentenced to be hurled over a cliff who relaxes by the cliffside. We are unaware of this and act complacent as we act complacent like an arhant who has done what has to be done. This is an omen that we will be going to the lower realms. You must see if you think you will be like the small quantity of sand that remains behind in the seams of the overturned sandbag. If our meditations give us insight into what it's like to be reborn in the lower realms, we will develop renunciation. So sometimes it's better to meditate on the sufferings of the lower realms than on deities. The amount of recollection of the sufferings of the lower realms needed is as follows. Two sons of Ananda's sister were put under Mahamogalana's care. The lads would not study their books, so Mahamogalana showed them the hills. They developed a natural repudiation because of their recollection of the hills. So anyway, that's uh, suffering of animals and so forth. And... Uh, We'll just finish up with the suffering of human beings, and then go, and that, that actually goes directly into the some short recollections on the sufferings of devas. So this is getting close to the uh, those eight types of suffering that we do in our chanting. This is the thinking about uh, suffering of seeking things we desire but not finding them. So this is the uh, not getting what one wants is dukkha. This is suffering from heat and cold, or from ignoring the heat, cold, fatigue, fear, and so forth that go along with earning a living. It's like the example of asking something important of an official. First, your hopes of getting what you want tire and trouble you. Then you suffer when you do not attain your aims. Some may think that landowners are happy because they possess the causes of affluence, but they have not transcended suffering either. Farmers have to get up early in the morning at the crack of dawn for their work. During the day, they are burned by the sun and tormented by the wind in the midst of dust. Once the seeds have been planted, the grain must be brought in. But until the grain is safely in storage vessels, farmers, won't worry. farmers worry that frost, hail, blight, and drought may come. Even if they prepare the ground, they may not get any crops. These worries continually cause them to suffer. You may think traders are happier than farmers, but traders suffer too. They have to leave their parents, friends, wives, and children behind and risk their lives by wandering through remote lands. They don't dare to lie down and sleep at night. They cross rivers, passes, narrow paths, and so on. Some show no profit from their trading and lose all their capital as well. Enemies, bandits, robbers, or thieves could even take their lives. Even if you don't have any wealth or property, you still suffer its lack. Beggars suffer. If they eat this piece of food today, they wonder what they will eat tomorrow. This makes them unhappy, so they go off in search of food, yet they may suffer by not finding any. Even when you have wealth and property, you suffer because of it. 
Beggars accost the wealthy, those with possessions, and carry some of the wealth away. Others borrow and carry some of it away. Officials take from you and carry some of it away. Even rats and cats rob you and carry some of it away. The rich suffer because they accumulate wealth and cannot protect it. You can worry about losing something and suffer. You can suffer because people slander you. People who ply a trade for a living, carpenters and tailors, for example, may not earn enough for their food, clothes, and rent. They suffer because people don't respect them. They suffer from pride and jealousy, and they may not be able to acquire or even steal a piece of wood or cloth. We may be ordained, but if we do not solely practice Dhamma properly by having contentment and few wants, even performing funerals and rituals in people's homes is a form of suffering. When officials investigate, they think their citizens are happy, but their citizens have not transcended suffering either. Their clothes are in rags on their pale bellies. They have no freedom over their property because they are taxed and must do compulsory service. They may be insulted, whipped, and so on. Some have no time even to eat and must herd the animals near, far, and in between. Some don't even have the means for making barley flour, yet they are still taxed. Disaster can befall them. They can be heavily punished, and so on. In short, they worry day and night, and they must waste their human lives in suffering and exhaustion. And these citizens may think the officials are happy, but it is not so. From Arya Deva's 400 verses, the high have mental suffering, the ordinary have physical suffering. These two sufferings conquer the world every single day. In other words, you may be a great king of a country, but you still suffer. You carry the burden of the country's suffering because the country's disputes and other unpleasant topics are usually brought before you. You fear any enemies still unsubdued. You fear for any unprotected friends. You fear the people the law cannot suppress. You worry about loss of power, and so on. We ordained people only eat at lunchtime, yet we have to wear ourselves out with a great deal of work. In short, even if you only have one horse, that's a horse worth of suffering. When people first meet, they say nice things to each other, no matter who they are. On further acquaintance, they will only argue and make sarcastic remarks. Kalzing Gyatso, the seventh Dalai Lama, said, Whoever you see, high or low, ordained or lay, man or woman, except for their dress, appearance, and haughtiness of manner, each has an equal share of ugly human life. How sad to see friends and family sharing the same burden. In other words, externally, people may have good or bad clothes and surroundings, but internally, all experience suffering equally. Our living place may be unsatisfactory, and there may be various other things wrong. We may have no furniture, friends, and so on. Yet even if we have the best of places, friends, and amenities, we still have not transcended suffering. Even if we replace all our hundreds or thousands of servants, pupils, and friends, still they will all be unsatisfactory. Not one will be truly like-minded, and this is a sign that whoever we befriend will increase our suffering. Whatever you enjoy, even tea, is an enjoyment of suffering. Wherever you stay, even in monasteries, is a place of suffering. When we first stay in a monastery, we are unhappy, so we go to another, hoping this will be better, but it's not, and so we go to a hermitage, but even there we don't get along with someone. So we go on a pilgrimage. Even this doesn't make us happy, 
So we go back to our homeland thinking this might be better, and then we get restless. Whomever we speak to, we only complain about such tiresome things as food, fashion, and people's reputations, and this is the fault of samsara. I have acquainted you with human suffering. When you do not have this acquaintance, there is a danger that you might think that it is your particular location or friends that create your suffering, or that samsara is somewhere far off over there. For this not to happen, you must know that the root of suffering, as I have already explained, is the fault of samsara. Until you turn away from samsara, you will only experience infinite sufferings, no matter where you go. Thinking about the sufferings of the demigods, or the asuras, you may think, still, if I'm reborn as a demigod, won't I have some happiness? But even in this rebirth, you experience only suffering from Nagarjuna's letter. The demigods by nature have great mental suffering, for they hate the glory of the gods. Though they are discerning, they will not see the truth, for this migration is obscured. The demigods are located on the part of Mount Meru that lies under the ocean. They have four cities, Bright, Moon Garland, Noble Place, and Immutable. These four levels are the same distance apart as the gods' four levels on Mount Meru. The demigods cannot generally compete with the gods except in a few things where they are similar, and the gods steal the beautiful demigod women. The gods have greater riches, for example, the ambrosia of immortality, and therefore the demigods are forever tormented by the fires of suffering of enormous jealousy. If we get so unhappy when we are jealous of the petty affluence of our enemies, need I say how unbearable the great affluence of the gods must be for the demigods. When the demigods can no longer stand their sickening jealousy, they go to war. Iravana, the god's great elephant, hurls rocks at them with his trunk. The demigods throw weapons, but the gods die only when their necks are severed. The demigods may die when a weapon hits any part of their body, so they are always defeated, and at no time do they win. We are terrified when two armies of similar strengths fight in the human realms, but are the demigods afraid when they must wage such a war against the gods? They are absolutely terrified. Demigod armies must wage these wars continuously till they die, so they suffer. The demigod women back home are also tormented by suffering, for they can witness everything in the surface of Lake Adarsha, the defeat of the demigod armies, the deaths of their companions, and so on. Though the demigods have wisdom, their rebirth is so veiled by Kama that in that rebirth, they are not fortunate enough to see the truth. In that case, you may ask, these are the sufferings of the gods, the devas, are these so-called gods happy? No, the desire realm gods also experience suffering from falling when they leave that rebirth, from being intimidated, and from being maimed, killed, and banished. The first of these is as follows. These are verses. Their body color becomes ugly. Their thrones do not please them. Their flower garlands fade. Their clothes pick up stains. And their bodies sweat for the first time. These, the five omens of death, signal departure from paradise. When these happen to gods in the celestial realms, they are like omens of death, proclaiming that even people beyond the earth will die. In other words, there are five signs of distant death and five signs of approaching death, and the gods suffer when these ten omens appear. 
The luster of their body fades. They refuse to sit on their thrones. That's actually in the uh, suttas as well, that they no longer delight in their seats. The flowers they wear fade. Their clothes pick up stains. They sweat and so on. Their bodies give off less light. Water adheres to their bodies when they wash. The jewelry on their bodies gives off an unpleasant sound. Their eyes blink and they keep to one place. When these ten signs appear, they wail in some forsaken place, writhing like fish out of water. Gods undergo this suffering for seven of their days. In the realm of the four Maharajas of the cardinal directions, for example, this lasts for 350 human years. The gods undergo three phases. The previous rebirth that caused them to be reborn as gods, their present situation as gods, and wherever they will be going after they die. The gods know all three, so they know where they will be reborn next. The gods did not use their early part of the rebirth to create even one kind of virtue, such as considering their own suffering and developing renunciation, or considering the sufferings of others and developing compassion. Thus their previously accumulated merit is running out, having been used up. Suppose you wear a monk's shawl that costs ten sang, while other monks wear shawls that cost only one sang. That means you have squandered ten times as much as the results of, of the results of your merit. Similarly, bliss in the god realms is so intense that it uses up a lot of merit, and hence the gods are normally reborn in the lower realms. This is why they say now that now is the time for us to accumulate merit, not the time to squander the results of merit. The gods know they will fall and it increases their suffering. They see that they will be without their affluence, the celestial realms, their body, possessions, friends, and so forth, and will be reborn in the lower realms. Their mental suffering is 16 times greater than that of the hells. We have such suffering and mental anguish when we die, even though we are uncertain whether our next rebirth will be good or bad. They are certain, however, for they see that they are sure to be reborn in the lower realms. They say things like, Alas, I shall not see the grove of chariots again. The other gods and goddesses cannot even bear to look at those displaying the signs of death. They avoid them as they would shun a corpse and leave them in solitude. Those about to die say to their companions, I have only a short while to live, and then we'll move on to my next rebirth, which will be miserable, so I want to see you now. They make these heart-rending pleas, but the others cannot bear even to look at them with their own eyes. Their old companions and once firm friends put flowers on the end of a pole, and so on, and, keeping their distance, place these on their heads. They pray for them. After you die and leave these rebirths, you will be reborn in the human realm. May you then accumulate merit and be reborn as a god again. This is all they do, and it only adds to the misery of the dying gods, making their mental anguish even greater. The gods with smaller amounts of merit see the majesty and affluence of the gods with greater merits. This is intimidating, and they have even greater suffering and mental anguish thereby. When the gods and demigods fight, they experience the suffering of having their limbs cut off, of being maimed, and of dying. The less powerful gods suffer because the more powerful gods drive them out of their dwellings. In a rebirth as a god of the higher realms of form and formlessness, one does not have the sufferings of displaying the signs of death, but one is still oppressed by the suffering of all conditioned phenomena. 
One still has delusions and obscurations, and one will suffer by taking bad rebirths because one is powerless to remain in this rebirth, powerless to control one's death or where one will go afterwards. Vasu Bandhu says in his instruction for the accumulations, those in the form and formless realms transcend the suffering of suffering for a while. But these lords of single-pointed concentration remain motionless for aeons, so it is most certain they'll not be liberated and will later fall from there. In other words, when you're reborn as, for example, a formless realm god, you know that you have been reborn. Then you enter meditative absorption for many aeons and eventually die and fall to a lower state. You therefore suffer because you are powerless to maintain your state. These rebirths as gods use up merit. And when there's no more accumulated merit left, the gods must leave that life and are reborn in a lower state. But because the continuity of their conceptual wisdom has been broken, they will be very stupid and more lacking in wisdom than other beings. Some people mistake the actual jhana concentration states for liberation and think that when they attain these states, they have gained liberation. Later, when they see that they are going to take rebirth, they deny that there is liberation and so are reborn in the hell without respite. This is why being reborn in these states is no different from staying in a cauldron in hell. All you have done is lost your direction temporarily. Far better to be in the human realm as some old beggar woman reciting Om Mani Padme Hung instead. Kalzing Gyatso, the seventh Dalai Lama said, the famous so-called three realms of samsara are a house of molten iron. Go in any of the ten directions and you'll be burnt by suffering. Your heart aches, but these are your surroundings. You wander in such an evil place and sad are your surroundings. In other words, you may be reborn anywhere in samsara from the depths of the hell without respite to the heights of the peak of existence. But it is like staying in a six-story house of molten iron. You've not transcended suffering at all. Once during a famine, some children asked for barley flour, but were given several varieties of turnip instead. The children wouldn't touch any of them and said, ah, they're turnips. Similarly, wherever you are reborn, its nature is suffering. Only certain aspects are different, and everyone is equally happy or unhappy. To summarize, you are endlessly tortured by the three types of suffering. We in samsara have such thoughts as, I am happy, but these thoughts are really suffering in their very nature. Our thoughts of, I am indifferent, are in their very nature suffering. When we pour cold water on a burn, we seem temporarily happy. All our contaminated happy feelings eventually change into suffering, and thus are the suffering of change. Not only these contaminated happy feelings, but all their, all their concomitant primary minds and mental factors and any contaminated object that serves to develop the happy feelings, all are the suffering of change. When you first receive a burn, you are not actually tormented by heat, although the nature of the burn is heat. This is only temporary. However, so long as nothing hot or cold to the touch, like water, etc., comes into contact with the wound. Likewise, Contaminated feelings of equanimity, together with their concomitant primary minds, mental factors, and their objects, are under the power of past karma and delusions. They are linked to the seeds of future suffering and delusion. They are also linked to the ever-present mental, evil mental states. Feelings of equanimity are therefore the suffering that pervades conditioned phenomena. 
When hot water, say, comes into contact with a burn, you develop manifest suffering from the sensation of heat. Suffering such as this is the worst suffering, these feelings of pain. Contaminated feelings of suffering that torment mind and body, together with concomitant primary minds, mental factors, and the objects of these feelings, are the suffering of suffering. When we feel, I am suffering, it is the suffering of suffering. In Pali, that's called dukkha dukkha. It's one, one, there's sukha dukkha, viparinama dukkha, and there's dukkha dukkha. The, your notion of happiness itself is the suffering of change. That's viparinama dukkha. A sign that it is not truly happiness, but only your notion of happiness is the fact that it goes on too long. Your suffering will increase. Your suffering had at first only dropped below a threshold level. Later it will rise above the threshold, and the intervening period is your notion of happiness. Suppose we are now sitting in the shade for too long. We feel cold, so we move out into the sun. We seem to feel happy for a while, but this is not happiness. If it were, it would be like suffering. The more we encounter, the more it would increase. If going out into the sun were happiness, no matter how long we sat there, our happiness must grow the more, not become unhappiness. This is not what happens. We suffer again a little later and have to go back into the shade. Our suffering has gradually risen above its threshold, although this is not in fact obvious. The same thing happens when you go walking. When you get tired, you sit down and seem to be happy for a while, but the suffering from standing up has only dropped below its threshold. The smaller suffering from sitting is not yet apparent, although it will soon rise above its threshold when you are tired of sitting. Similarly, after you sit for a while, the suffering becomes apparent. Then you will say, I want to go for a walk. When you get up again, your suffering from sitting falls below its threshold, and your suffering from standing again has not yet actually risen above its threshold, and so on. From 400 verses, you can see that no matter how much happiness increases, it will end. Similarly, suffering also increases, but there is no end to it. The contaminated aggregates are a case of the suffering that pervades all conditioned phenomena, the creation of these aggregates causes one to become a vessel for all suffering. You experience the sufferings of heat and cold of the hells because you have received the aggregates of a hell being. You experience the sufferings of a hungry ghost's hunger and thirst because you have received the aggregates of a hungry ghost. When you create for yourself the body of an animal, a donkey, say, you carry a load on your back, get whipped, and so on because you have created for yourself the vessel in which to experience these sufferings. In short, even the unbearable pain of being pricked by a thorn happens because you are afflicted with a set of aggregates. Just as a man carrying a load of brambles on his naked back will never be without suffering until he puts his load down, you will never be without any type of suffering until you are free of the burden of the contaminated aggregates. They are called afflicted aggregates for three reasons. Fire issuing from brambles is called bramble fire. The afflicted aggregates come from past delusions, the inflictor or substantial cause, so the result has, has been named after the cause, i.e. afflicted aggregates. A man dependent on the king is called the king's man. Delusions, the inflictor or substantial cause, are an outcome of afflicted aggregates, the thing being bolstered is given the name of the bolsterer.
Therefore, it's caused by and produces afflictions. A tree that produces a medicine or a type of blossom is called the tree of this particular medicine or the tree of that particular blossom. Your own actions arose from your afflicted delusions. So the name of the result has been given to the cause. These aggregates are the suffering that pervades all conditioned phenomena because the evil states of suffering and delusion are forever adhering to them. As long as one has these aggregates, each time one does not have the feeling of suffering, one will immediately afterward be made to develop much suffering by various means. The suffering that pervades conditioned phenomena therefore pervades all suffering and is the root of the other two kinds of suffering. The aggregates created the vessel for the suffering of this rebirth because they create the future rebirth that leads to suffering. Among all sufferings, the aggregates are the worst. Sangsara is a state of helplessness in which one receives the burden of the contaminated, afflicted aggregates by virtue of kama and delusion. This means that one takes rebirth from the peak of existence down to the hell without respite and circles between these over and over again. This is why it is correct to see the contaminated, afflicted aggregates themselves as sangsara. In order to weary of sangsara, one must weary of the contaminated, afflicted aggregates. Until one wearies of the suffering that pervades conditioned phenomenon, one will not truly weary of sangsara. I'll leave it there. So again, maybe that's, uh, that's I think that I'll leave it there in terms of readings from just uh, just two days of readings from Mahayana teachings before returning to Lumpur Cha and more of the Pali Canon and the suttas. But if anybody has any questions or comments about any of that, um, I do think there's a lot of good parallels in those teachings. And uh, I do a lot of the things he's saying, those very basic teachings about the sufferings that humans experience in particular, I found very, very pertinent and very similar to a lot of the things I've read and heard from the Kurubhajans. It's, uh, it's uh, pretty, pretty strong teachings. Is there any uh, questions or comments? About five minutes. The, using the term afflicted aggregates, that's also uh, uh, Ajahn Mun in his Ballad of Liberation talks about them in a very similar way. Ajahn, while, while there are there would be lots of small, specific questions I would have. I think the, the broader question that I have is, other than if I try and sort of umbrella the theme, which I think ties to you, how you titled it yesterday around, um, I forget the exact language, but for me it just felt like developing the urgency to become weary. The yearning um, for liberation. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and, and then just all the ways we see, don't see suffering, um, and hence don't develop enough urgency. Is there some other broad points that I should take away uh, other than like all the manifestations of the examples? Does that make well, sense? Well, I think uh, the whole, the overriding um, message with yesterday's and today's reading is that without contemplating these sufferings and truly internalizing the all-encompassing nature of the suffering of the afflicted aggregates, one won't truly have enough impetus to develop a yearning to be freed or liberated from samsara. One won't have that enough yearning, one won't have enough impetus to really 
put the effort into the into say uh, letting go of the world or have enough courage to actually or have enough reason for oneself to really let go of everything and uh, so it's like you it, I see it as a develop of wisdom a real insight into the first noble truth that the all all pervasive nature of suffering because our minds are constantly saying well you know maybe if I just eat the right foods and get the right medicines and get comfortable enough, then I'll be happy. So it's like that, we hear it like uh, our own teachers, Ajahn Amaro used to talk like this a lot, like uh, dot, 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 then I'll be happy. If I just dot, 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 insert your story here, then I'll be happy. You know? Then, uh, so anything you insert, you actually see it as, well, no, then I'll just continue suffering. <laughs> It's not, then I'll be happy. That's a delusion. So to really develop that wisdom that sees that, uh, it, it's also like Ajahn Mahabua saying, when the wisdom got to a certain point, his mind had nowhere to maneuver. It couldn't go anywhere. And uh, it could only go straight into the core of seeing, seeing exactly where delusion and ignorance originated from. And so uh, I really do think that's, it's all really pointing at that, that uh, uh, not, and it even matches this uh, sutta that I remember Ajahn Kachana read one winter retreat that really moved me and I, I hadn't heard it in a long time. It was, uh, the Buddha says in the suttas is not apart from letting go of everything, not apart from abandoning all, not apart from relinquishing all, do I see even any safety for any being so uh, that's a very strong statement, but it's it's really what all these teachers are pointing to, and uh, for that's the teaching we don't always give to lay people. It's the teaching we go for as monastics because we have, you know, made that at least an external gesture of at least trying to give up everything or or renounce the world, um, and so so these teachings are looking towards that that sense of relinquishment that's patinisaga it's the uh, last step on the anapanasati sutta as well so it's really uh, it's all really pointing at that developing enough seeing seeing the all, per all pervasive nature of suffering enough that we develop a really strong sense of uh, that and a, and a courageousness in terms of the yearning to be free of it but the danger being, you know, we could just become depressed and want to kill ourselves. So we don't want to go there either. It's like there's also, uh, well, if um, these different levels of developing mindfulness to have, you will have more happiness, but it's not going to be the happiness of liberation. Thank you, Ajahn. Art. All right. Uh, yeah. Thank you, Ajahn. Um, um, I found uh, interesting in this reading that this kind of a background um, uh, of mer the merit uh, accumulation and using up. And uh, if, yeah, I feel like um, I guess it's not necessarily the point. The point being the you know the relinquishment and transcendence, but. Um, yeah, there was the example of the devas accumulating the merit and then using it up and then 
but in particular, there's one quick example of the, um, uh, I think it was the the monk who wore like a ten ten uh, dollar uh, robe versus the one dollar robe, using up ten times more merit. Do you, do you have anything? I would say, yeah, I don't completely agree with that statement that he has in there and that uh, this is to be taken with a grain of salt, that it really, there's many other factors such as the the overriding level of virtue of that person. It's not like you're just using up 10 times more merit because you're wearing a robe that's 10 times more valuable necessarily, but uh, I think he's just making a statement as like a general a generalization it's more like a generalization, but uh, I think those types of statements, you know, would take it as a, it's maybe not, not that way every time. It really, it's like the teaching in the suttas of, uh, you know, when a bad person does a bad action, it affects them more than when a good person does the same bad action. Like the, it's like throwing a lump of salt in a cup of water or throwing a lump of salt in a big river so that the result would be experienced differently. So I think there's other factors at work there, like the level of parami and things like that, and the intention, the intention as well. Um, you know, if a, if a monk is wearing a rag robe out of modesty, then he might uh, make a certain amount of merit. You know, he might have a certain amount of merit associated with that. But if a monk is wearing a rag robe with the intention of showing off then it might be different, a different type of kama. So externally, it's the same action. So there's also the intention there. But uh, in terms of describing the gods, and I know uh, like Lumpur Biak, Lumpur Anand have have also taught people that they they give these teachings fairly openly that the human realm is the realm where we actually build most of our accumulations, and that the other realms, uh, as a generalization, are where you mostly use up. The results of of past kama, so that the gods actually do use up massive amounts of good kama that has been accumulated previously. Um, they, some might be able to make a little bit of more good kama, but generally they they don't care because it's so blissful. They don't really care about making more good kama or getting out of suffering. But it's more just resting on your laurels and and just getting, just receiving, just receiving the results. Just receiving things. Yeah, just uh, to ad address kind of the, the comment question about, you know, accumulating merit and then spending merit and using it up, that kind of transactional kind of a thing. It's, yeah, I mean, it's a totally accurate description, but looking at it also from the perspective of, you know, mental momentum, it's like merit, you know, produces these very positive states of mind, you know, good actions, wholesome actions produce a positive state of mind, but it's not a permanent, it's not forever because the momentum just has its own natural course of slowing down and petering out unless it's repetitively sustained, you know, through that kind of intentional, wholesome action. Um, so, you know, as opposed to maybe looking at it as a you're storing up your bank account and then spending the earnings, just seeing it as kind of a psychological mental momentum that just has a natural course that wears out unless it's repetitively sustained, you know, through through that kind of intention. So the idea is to just sort of see the endlessness of it, even if you're 
constantly making good merit and putting it in your bank account. It's just, you know, it's just a constant refreshing, sustaining that needs to do to, to maintain that same thing or else it just has its natural tendency to peter out. Yeah, however much is built up still wears out. Yeah. Okay, thank you everybody, Puja 7.